Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Ribot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. Moods and Modes, episode 31. This is Alex. And in the background, that can only be the great Les Paul. Oh, and here's Mary Ford. Ah. Decades later, it's still beyond awesome. All right, here's one more lick from Les. How great is that? And how great is Les? And Mary, too. Now, that's not the original recording. That version of How High the Moon is from Les and Mary's appearance on a CBS television program in the 50s called Omnibus, hosted by a highly distinguished British-American journalist named Alastair Cook, who is probably most remembered as being the original host of Masterpiece Theater in the 70s on PBS and presenting high-art British television. 
and having a very distinguished voice. Yet despite his serious aura and prestigious demeanor, you can imagine Cook as a tenured classics professor at Princeton. He is a great sport when it comes to Les's comedic antics on the show. And in fact, Les really seems to bring out his sense of humor, which if you're familiar with Alistair Cook, you're not used to seeing. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, we'll hear a couple clips from that show soon. First, I just want to welcome everyone to the episode and say how grateful I am for the reaction to the previous episode, the Vault of Les Paul, episode 30. It's been great to read everybody's comments online. I've even heard from some of the cast of that episode who had no idea what I was up to carrying an MP3 recorder most of the time and who were very pleased with the result. That meant a lot. Quite a few of you cited this as a favorite episode or the favorite episode, all of which is to say there is a demand for more or less, pun not intended. Therefore, we're going to do this episode as a follow-up to the previous one. Now, if you haven't heard episode 30 and you're just tuning into this one because it's the latest episode, I highly recommend you go back one and listen to that story, especially if you don't know much about Les Paul, the person, as opposed to Les Paul, the instrument. In that episode, we look at different periods of Les's life, great highs, great lows, his impact on recording technology, why he is essential to the development of the solid body guitar, and something I feel sometimes gets overshadowed by his impact as an inventor, studio mastermind, and more, and that is his incredible guitar playing. We look at different periods of his music. We take a trip to Mawa, New Jersey, where Les lived, get to know a couple of his closest pals who are keepers of his legacy, one of them being the current mayor. We come face-to-face -face with some incredible items Les left behind, including guitars, and we get to know Les so much better, not just as a legend, but more importantly, as a human. There are some additional clips that you did not hear yet that are going to be featured in this episode, but it will help to have context. So again, if you haven't heard episode 30, go back and listen to it, and let's kick things off with a discussion about Les and his friend, also one of the most important figures in guitar in the 20th century, Django Reinhardt. That's Django. His sound is pretty unmistakable. I mentioned in episode 30 that some of Les's playing, particularly in the 40s, before he began altering the tone and pitch of the guitar, reminded me of Django. Let's hear an example. This is one of the earliest versions of the Les Paul trio. Can you hear any similarities? How cool. All right, so I'm going to have to explain this dialogue. It's not exactly clear. The first voice you heard was Jim. He's saying the word picks. I'm saying how cool. And the reason for that is I'm completely in awe, having just found out that these were picks made by Django Reinhardt himself. Now, the next voice you'll hear is Joe, whom you may recall has been a longtime member of the Mawa Fire Department and close pals with Les, along with Jim, a former police officer who is now the mayor. And this conversation is taking place in Mayor Jim's house. Cool. Django had made a, a, yeah, had, we'll had a box of picks. Yeah. You'll get to see. And all they said big Les pockets. Paul. Go and years cool ago, stuff. Les gave, there was probably 40-some left in the box. So let's sit here. All right, that's a noisy clip. Let me repeat in case you didn't catch that. Quote, Django had made up a whole box of picks. All they said on them was Les Paul. Years ago, Les gave it to us. There was probably 40-something left in the box. And Les said, here, unquote. Now, the context of this is that Les and Django were big admirers of each other. It's not like they were in touch regularly. Django lived in France in a caravan. He was a legitimate gypsy. And even if that wasn't the case, it's not like they could have spoken often. International communication has come a long way since the 1940s. Either way, they each listened to each other's music, and I would imagine that both being globally known musicians, that they were able to communicate at times via their respective representation, be it record labels or booking agents. Now, Django passed away in 1953, but not before Les and Mary hit the big time and were able to visit him in Paris. 
There's a great photo of the three of them in Paris, and I saw the original there in Jim's house. It's also reprinted in the booklet of this great Les Paul box set that I have, and you can find it online. Just look up Les Paul, Mary Ford, Django Reinhardt. And I have to say, Django looks pretty amazing, ahead of his time. He's wearing this sharp, light-colored trench coat and a tie that's reminiscent of Columbo, the detective in the television series from 20 years later in the 1970s. Anyway, that's 1953. A few years before that, I'm not sure the exact year, Django had made one of his rare appearances in the United States to perform in concert in New York. Les came to the show, and Django presented him with a box of the picks that he used. These are picks that he crafted himself, set aside specifically for Les, and put Les's name on them. Now, you may recall from the previous episode that Jim and Joe are sort of like angel investors when it comes to certain smaller items from Les's collection that he left behind. What I mean is certain things are meant to be given away to those who can appreciate them. For example, I received one of Les's cables, a pack of guitar strings, guitar polish, a couple records, a couple other things, all from Les's collection, as did my friend and ridiculous guitarist Ron Bumblefoot Thal, who, if you heard the previous episode, you know, is with us as well. And we will cherish these things forever. Now let's hear from Jim, who is describing the process of giving away one of these picks. It does not happen very often, but when it does, it's special. And the recipient, I think you'll agree, is very deserving and somebody many of you have heard of. I got these guitar picks. And the last one I gave away, I think, was to Warren Haynes. I gave to um, Jerry Leida from Artemis Piles Band. And I said, when you see um, uh, Warren, I said, he's a Les Paul guy. He needs one of these. And Jerry called me one day. He ran into um, Warren in a coffee shop. And he said, hey, Haynes, I got something for, for my guys in Jersey and handed him the guitar pick. He said Warren was just like, oh, my God. He goes, I love these style picks. Jerry explained to it where it came from. And he said it was like, at all. And we gave one to Brian Setzer. And I think it's safe to say those picks are in a good home and I imagine are being put to very good use. Now, just one more thing to mention about Django. Now, I did not know this, but apparently at the time he passed away, he was destitute. I was stunned to learn this. Now, the world is full of these tragic stories. Artists who passed away while struggling and only got discovered later. One that comes to mind for me is F. Scott Fitzgerald, who wrote The Great Gatsby, which no publishers were interested in at the time. And he went out like Nicolas Cage in Leaving Las Vegas, drowning in alcohol and broke. Of course, The Great Gatsby would go on to be considered a masterpiece, but he never lived to see it. Now, this was not the case with Django. Django is considered a legend today, but he was a legend in his lifetime. I do not know what happened. I can only guess that maybe his music had fallen out of favor because it was so identified with the earlier World War II era. It was also instrumental music during a time vocal music was getting more and more popular and early rock and roll was on the rise. Still, Les and Mary are on top of the world at this time. They're doing vocal music. They are on the pop charts. They are selling records in the millions. They have radio shows. They have hit TV shows. They will eventually experience a similar career challenge as far as their music falling out of favor, but not until the 1960s. And by then, they've made so much money from all those endeavors. And let's not forget the Les Paul guitar. So fortunately for Les and Mary, finance is never an issue, although there is a really interesting situation involving their divorce and finance, which I'm going to explain in a little bit. And that's a fascinating story. But first, back to Django. Django passes away and he is so broke, there is not even enough money for a grave site. Fortunately, he will receive a tomb that is beautiful to this day. And it is in uh, Fontainebleau, uh, south of Paris, a village. And it is entirely thanks to his friend, Les Paul. Here's Jim again. You know, uh, like a poor guy. No one accepted him. And when he died, Les, Les was out there to visit. By the time he got back, um, Django had died. He flew back. Django had no money. So Les bought his gravesite, redid it. And I got a picture of, of the actual gravesite. <sighs> it's amazing to know this, that Les goes to Paris to visit Django towards the end when Django's not doing too well. 
And keep in mind, this is the early 50s. Commercial aviation is still a relatively new thing. It's upscale, considered somewhat glamorous. It's not like today where everybody flies, and it's basically a step up from riding the bus. And it took much longer, too. This was an earlier period of aircraft, the days before the DC-9, the 747, and other planes closer to what we have today. All of which is to say a transcontinental flight during this period is a much bigger ordeal than now. Still, Les flies all the way back from Paris, hears that Django has passed away, flies straight back to Paris, and takes care of all the arrangements. What a guy. Let's hear a little bit of Les playing a tune that became a signature song of Django's, the appropriately titled Caravan. And these are just pictures of the house, you know, we take and we take it on the road so people can... Actual lion married Peter Pants when it roared. She wow. was so scared. <laughs> All right, let me explain what's going on there. We are sorting through a pile of plastic-wrapped original 8x10 photographs, which includes the photograph of Les, Mary, and Django described earlier, as well as Django's gravesite. And then there's a bunch of others, including this funny promotional photo where somebody had the brilliant idea to bring in a lion. <laughs> now, I don't know the details, but if I had to guess, I'd say it's probably during one of their engagements in Las Vegas. And the lion is courtesy of some earlier version of Siegfried and Roy. Regardless, Mary looks terrified. Poor thing. Tommy Manuel. This is the schematics for the Jimmy Page guitar that he gave us that's out in Nashville right now. Wow. All right, I think that should be pretty clear, but just in case, we're looking at the schematics for the Jimmy Page guitar that Les gave to Jim and Joe that is currently being serviced in Nashville at the Gibson factory. And uh, before that, a picture of Les and current acoustic guitar wizard Tommy Emmanuel. Um, that's his bass player, Nicky. Oh, Nicky Parrott. Yeah. yeah, I know Nicky. That's yeah. Nicky, um, that's, oh, there's another picture of you and Eddie. There's Eddie yeah. Joe. That's in the. That's with the Wolfgang guitar. It's just that's. We used to plow his driveways, but there was so much yeah, somebody, ice. Uh, somebody had to do the work. There was so much ice. We had to use it with a snowblower, and I had a broken ankle, so uh, I couldn't do it. So Joe, was, people said they had. A, you were in a candy store. I was in a candy store for a kid that doesn't play. I mean, we were in his house all the time, just picking guitars up and on his bed. Wow. I mean, the guitar is just crazy. This is from Steve Miller. These are all his actual yeah. hand notes. And then he gives the one note that he taught Steve way back. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta be honest, I don't remember what was so funny about that moment. Something humorous that Les put in his notes about teaching Steve Miller or teaching Steve Miller one note or who knows. Now, the voice you heard at the beginning of that clip is Benny Goodman, who listeners of episode 30 will remember is the one who instigated all this. And speaking of 30, Benny is the youth representative among us being in his 30s, but with a deep appreciation for music's history, especially concerning instruments. And we had an extensive segment on a long lost Les Paul guitar from Les's own collection from the time before the Les Paul was even available. The guitar was recovered by Benny and the pickups turned out to be on Jimmy's wall, and it wasn't long after they met. That's an incredible story. Go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it. And what Benny said was, there's another picture of you and Eddie. And I think the follow-up dialogue was clear, but just in case, it's Les Paul and, yes, Eddie Van Halen together. Also in the photo, kind of off to the side, is Jimmy. Now, Les and Eddie had become great pals. You're going to hear more about that in a moment. But it's amazing to think about. Les was good pals with Django in the 40s and 50s. And then he becomes pals with Eddie Van Halen, a completely different generation, different genre of music. Now, obviously, as a player, Les was more similar to Django. In fact, for a novice listener, there are occasional moments where it might even be hard to tell them apart, such as the clip that was played earlier. That would not be the case if the same novice listeners were to hear Les's crystal clear melodies and interpretations of classic standards and show tunes next to Eddie's feedback-drenched tone, crunchy riffs, and screaming solos. And I think most of you know what I'm talking about, but just in case, let's hear a few seconds of Les and Eddie back to back.
Yet for whatever differences there may have been between their music and their audiences, keep in mind that Eddie was playing for the kids, and in some cases the grandkids of Les Paul's typical demographic of listeners, the kid from Pasadena and the wizard from Waukesha and later Mawa had plenty in common. For as much time as both of them had put in mastering the guitar as musicians, each complemented that with a healthy amount of time spent in the garage tinkering with electronics, woodwork, and basically destroying guitars and rebuilding them, making history in the process. And let's not forget that, as we discussed in episode 30, in the late 40s, a tour de force of tone and monster playing comes out, completely redefining the playing field for the 1950s and beyond. And in an almost perfect parallel, this comes out 30 years later in the late 70s, which changes everything for the 80s and beyond. So as you can see, the impact of Lover by Les Paul and Eruption by Eddie Van Halen has this perfect parallel almost 30 years apart. Each of these pieces captures the sense of humor of its player with Eddie that comes through on the Kutzer violin quote in Eruption. And both pieces combine serious instrumental virtuosity and dexterity with sounds that are being introduced for the first time. So back to these two pals, Eddie and Les, who based on their different ages, different musical demographics, and different sounds, one might not think that they would be such good pals, but it makes complete sense. Both Lover and Eruption came out in the later part of a decade, totally redefining the next decade and beyond, and changing the playing field. And speaking of the playing field, some have been known to say the following phrase, which perfectly captures the bond between Les and Eddie. It may sound a little nerdy coming from my lips, but what the hell? Game recognized game. Whenever Les called you during the day, you kind of got worried because uh, he kept his hours. He slept all day, up all night. We shot over to Les's house. Didn't know what the problem was. We run into the house, and there he's got a coat on. He goes, come on, we got to go somewhere, and I'm driving. Of course, Jimmy, as he's told me before, the one time you let Les drive, he ends up in a cornfield. So I said, no, no, I'll drive. Where are we going? He said, don't worry, just get in. Unless you got to tell me where we're going. And he pointed, we're going over there. Well, he pointed to the Meadowlands. And I know Van Halen's playing there because all my friends are going to the concert that night. So I said, Les, you just can't show up. He goes, yeah, I know. Hearing Jimmy tell this and just knowing that Les Paul in his 90s is sitting in the back of this car. Keep driving. It's fine. Going to go see my buddy Eddie. <laughs> All right, that's Benny with the extra play-by-play -play commentary. There is more of that if you watch the clip on the channel, and it's hilarious. But for the sake of time, we're editing some of that out here. Here's Jimmy again. So we pull in, there's this little security guard, and goes, you got tickets? I'm like, nope. But right away, he turns and he yells, trooper! All of a sudden, this little trooper, I'm about my height, but strikes up and down. The meanest looking guy you ever want to run into. He comes up to the window, he sees my shield, roll the window down. I'm like, yes, sir. He goes, yo, bro, you on the job? I'm like, yeah, I'm a cop up in Mawa. He goes, got tickets? I'm like, nah. He goes, man, bro, I can't let you in. I said, yeah, but my buddy here, let, now I'm laughing. My buddy Les Paul wants to go say hi to his friend Eddie Van Halen. And he looks across and Les is sitting there. He runs around the front of the truck. Les rolls the window down and gives him a howdy. Troop goes, I just got a guitar from my daughter. It's got your name on it. And he goes, that's cool. Gave him more autograph. Got two state troopers with their lights on, escorting us to the back of the Meadowland. We get to the player's entrance between the tour buses. I'm looking at Josh. I said, this guy still got it. So Les knocks on the door. And uh, the voice inside goes, go the F away. I'm busy. Les looks at me and Joe goes, he's busy. And he laughs. Well, Les opens the door and you hear a crack. I thought Les fell. So I go around the door and I look at Eddie Van Halen standing in khakis. No shoes, no shirt, two cigarettes, one in his hand, one in, his, in, the, in the neck of the guitar, and he's crying. And he looked at Les and he said, he came to see me. And just so that's clear, Eddie's standing there crying. He looks at Les and says, you came to see me. 
and left said, you came to see me many years ago and surprised me. He goes, I'm paying that favor back. And Eddie's whacked. He just got out of rehab. He was whacked. Les said, first thing, get coffee, get rid of it. He had a little bottle of Gallo wine. Les goes, get coffee. We stayed in that little recording room, his practice room, for about two hours. I heard every riff you could ever imagine. At one point, uh, Eddie said to Les, you still got it, Les? He goes, I think so. And Les said, you got it? And then Eddie goes up and down the neck. And it was funny, because Les just sat there, like, looking at him, like... So right here, Jim does a visual impersonation of Les looking at Eddie, arms folded, with an expression kind of like my cats look at me. Not impressed. Uh, Eddie's going crazy on the neck. All of a sudden, Eddie goes, you still got it, Les? He goes, yeah, I think so. He gives him the guitar, Wolfgang guitar, and Les goes, turn that amp up. <laughs> so Eddie's like, whoa. And he goes, you ready? And Eddie goes, yeah. And Les hits the high E and just had to sustain. One note. And it's just ringing and ringing. Finally, Eddie grabbed the neck, the neck and stopped. He goes, I get it, Les. And they laughed about it. We're watching the show, so after the fifth song, he goes, come on, Jimmy, let's go. So he put the coat on, and he huddles us all in. And I was like, what's up? He goes, you watching him out there? I'm like, yeah. He goes, I created a monster. I created a monster. What a beautiful story. I can't help but think of The Last Dance, the recent documentary on the Chicago Bulls, which is amazing, even if you're not a big sports fan, as I'm not. In that film, you see Michael Jordan and other NBA players of the period, some of the greatest of all time. And they are close friends with a relationship that reminds me a bit of Les and Eddie with friendly competition. Kind of like, I love you, man. I could still kick your ass on the court. Oh, yeah? It's on. That was the last time Les ever uh, sat and talked to Eddie in person that uh, they were very dear friends. You can also see the love that these guys had for each other with their arms around each other like brothers. I mean, it, it just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. And cheers to the heavens to both Eddie and Wes. I stayed in contact with Eddie over the years because he found out I had the um, black box, the Wes Pulverizer. And he always tried to get it from Wes and Wes would never budge on it. So once every month after that, I'd get a phone call from California, and I got the number memorized. Every time I saw the number, I'd be like, that's nah, not for sale yet, Eddie, and I'd hang up. And, <laughs> and then he offered me a crazy number for that little black box. I said, nah, not yet. And unfortunately, Eddie had passed away, and, uh, but I still got the black box. It was a good story. And a lot of fun. Eddie was a, Eddie was a true, true gentleman, you know, and he loved Les. Les loved him, and... Two heroes are up there now, and they're, they're making beautiful music up there. What a story. Two of the goats, as in greatest of all time. Now, this is a perfect time to pivot to the subject of the Les Pulverizer. What was it? Why was Eddie Van Halen so interested in it? Did Eddie actually believe that it made all the sounds that Les proclaimed it did? Was it a genius invention? Was it nothing but a prop? The answer is somewhere between all of those things. Allow me to explain. To begin, let's consider a very interesting fact about Les Paul. That is not so much a contradiction as much as an irony. Now, in episode 30, we explored the fact that Les had this aversion to the trappings of show business and celebrity. Yes, he'd conquered the big cities, starting with Chicago, then New York, and Hollywood. But he wound up in Mawa and wouldn't have it any other way. And yes, he had some friends in the industry. Eddie Van Halen, as we were just discussing. Django Reinhardt, who we talked about earlier. Oh, and Bing Crosby, who was a few years older. He was a lifelong friend of Les. Yet from about 1980 until the end of his life in the late 2000s, his closest pals became these two local guys from Jersey who we first met in episode 30, Jim and Joe from the Mawa PD and Mawa FD respectively. Now herein lies the irony or the contradiction, if you will. Despite a resistance to the celebrity lifestyle, the baggage that comes with a career in show business, dealing with phonies, suck-ups, pretension, uh, things haven't changed much, by the way. So despite all of that, the ironic part is Les had an incredible knack for show business. He was very good at creating myths and stretching the truth. Now, he did not do this in life. No one ever got hurt from Les's stretching of the truth because it was part of performance. And he let people in on it. There were clues. I'll, I'll explain more about this in a moment. But it all begins with his name. He recognizes that Lester William Pulfus doesn't quite have a ring to it. Enter Les Paul. 
Now I'm going to quote from Play It Loud by Brad Talinsky and Alan DePerna, which I quoted from liberally in episode 30. This is talking about the mid-40s when Les was very active performing on the radio. Quote, NBC placed him in charge of several shows, some featuring jazz and others country. Searching for a singer for one of his country spots, he was introduced to Colleen Summers. The two headed off and would later marry and record together as Les Paul and Mary Ford. The latter name is one that Les found in a phone book and subsequently copyrighted, unquote. So Mary Ford is really Colleen Summers. And the Les Pulverizer, well, that depends on when you're introduced to it. Since we're on the subject of Les's radio days, let's return to a clip of Les and Mary on the radio. This actually picks up right where it left off on our episode 30. What a commotion. Why does everything have to happen to me? I wonder if Edison or Benjamin Franklin went through a thing like this. Benjamin Franklin was a great man. He oh, discovered yeah. electricity. He did, huh? Well, what about the guy that discovered the meter? He's the one that made all the money. <laughs> the best thing you can do is loosen up those straps and take that less pulverizer off your back. And don't forget to pull the AC plug out of the wall before you get a shock. Never mind. Here, let me help you with that. I got it on and I can wiggle out of it. You aren't a sight for sore eyes trying to wiggle out of that gadget. You look like a hula dancer. Do I really? You act so silly. <laughs> silly being the operative word. Hey, it's a different era of humor. And it's all in good fun. So in all these radio spots, the less pulverizer is something you wear. You're supposed to picture it. Now, in our previous episode, we heard that sketch about a minute or so earlier in which Les supposedly catches Mary, who has run off with the Les pulverizer, and she proceeds to make a bunch of wacky sounds with her voice and his. And it's quite fascinating because in the context of this I Love Lucy type situation, the audience is being treated to a very new sound involving harmonies and special effects. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, Les did create these sounds using tape machines. But what's not true is that they're being triggered by knobs and buttons on something resembling a jetpack. Just a second, Les. Uh, what, can you tell me what all these things mean? I mean, this is mighty impressive. And here's the radar screen. Well, right? yeah. Uh, this, this, for instance, here. Okay. I so this is a few years later. Les and Mary are on primetime television. This is the program Omnibus on CBS, hosted by Alistair Cook. That was mentioned earlier. Les has flipped the script as far as the myth of the Les Pulverizer. It's no longer something you wear on your back like a jetpack, but rather a large machine full of buttons and knobs. It looks like one of the earliest computers or something that could be found in the cockpit of the spaceship of the original series Lost in Space. Control here in this high and low pass filter, and uh, you have to have a tweeter and woofer speaker to hear it played back. And if you got a cinema futzer, of course, you can raise and lower each end and do anything you want with it. Well, let's see what comes out. Well, it's just about ready here. <clears throat> got it? No, I've got it, but what does the machine do to it? All right, now, if you want to hear that back in five parts, set this here. As long as there isn't smoke. Now, <laughs> that should uh, do it. Okay, so this is a lot of fun. The audience is being let in on the whole setup. It's obviously not quite exactly the same sound that he played, and the noise you heard just before the music started was less pounding the machine. And I don't think there's any such thing as a cinema futzer. Now let's hear Alistair Cook, the distinguished gentleman himself and future PBS host, speak into the microphone and wait for the result. The pounding you hear is less hitting the machine. Look, uh, can you talk into this thing? I mean, could I say a phrase and it would, it would come out? Surely. Mm -hmm. All right. Could I try? Do I have something in mind? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, your voice is a little different. Put on the, put on the English. <laughs> Just slightly. There's a little English on that. All right. <laughs> Ready? Got it. Uh, this is Alistair Cook, who comes up every Sunday on Omnibus. 
This is Alistair Cook, the lad what comes up every Sunday on Omnibus. <laughs> this is a fake, this whole thing. You asked yes, for it. Yes, it is. Well, and there it is. Les is revealing on national television that the source of Les and Mary Sounds is not some mysterious machine straight out of science fiction with buttons, knobs, and switches. A few minutes later on the same program, he will explain the process of pre-recording and how he and Mary use reel-to-reel tape machines to enhance their sound. Now, one might easily think that this big reveal on national television could mark the end of the Les Pulverizer as a concept, but it will return in the form of a little black box that attaches to Les's guitar. This is certainly a more practical story to keep going than one concerning a giant contraption which resembles a primitive spaceship cockpit or a mysterious electronic outfit that one slips on and off like a jetpack. Supposedly, this little black box, with the push of a button or turn of a knob, changes pitch and adds harmony. Or does it? The answer to this question, and a lot more, is coming up right after we take our short midway break. And I hope you are enjoying this second Les Paul episode. I have to say, there was so much that did not make it into the first one. It was just too much, and hearing it now, I'm really glad we decided to do this. So thanks again for all the positive feedback, which is what encouraged me to do this follow-up episode. Now, as far as housekeeping, not a whole lot to get into. As we speak, I am 48 hours from leaving to Europe. Um, I'm excited about that. It's been a couple years since I've been abroad, uh, since before this podcast. It's kind of crazy to think about what we've all been through these last couple of years. Most obviously the pandemic, of course, but recently it feels like we're going through a judicial pandemic, at least in the United States. As I speak, tomorrow is the 4th of July. And I know I'm not the only one who feels this way, ambivalent and disappointed. And I have celebrated the United States of America earnestly, but what was worth celebrating? The idea that there was social progress Things were moving forward. It was evolving. This week, it feels like things are devolving. And it's not good. But enough about that. Of course, I could go on and on, but we don't have time. And you can always see my Twitter feed for more detailed political thoughts. On to something more positive. I have content for the next several episodes of this podcast. I'm really happy about this because I want to avoid being derailed by the tour as much as I was during the spring. And as I explained on the last episode, there were a number of challenges and complications, especially to do an episode like this, which is how I like to do them, you know, with a lot of creativity and spontaneity. And it requires concentration. It requires quiet and it requires time, all of which are in very short supply when you're on the road. So I think a compromise is in order. I'm going to try to be open to more simple ideas. For these next few, they are conversational, and I'm probably going to keep them largely conversational. That is my plan anyway. Wish me luck. Thanks for understanding. And now let's get back to our follow-up episode on Les Paul. This is the Les Pulverizer, which is the first backing track. What he used to do is he'd go like, and press this button, and he'd go, that's the drums! And he'd start playing back, and then he'd go... It was like a looping pedal kind of thing. But it wasn't. It was a backing track. That is Benny Goodman, of course. And once again, this is from the latest episode of his channel, The Neurotic Guitarist, which takes place in Boston and includes some of the Boston music community, such as members of Extreme, including vocalist Gary Sharon, who was also once a member of Van Halen, and Barry Goudreau, an original member of the band Boston. And he made everyone think that he was actually doing it live. But the truth was, he actually developed this and he convinced everybody, like David Copperfield style, that he was actually playing whatever he was recording. But in fact, he had already previously recorded it. And this was what actually controlled his tape machine. Jimmy, why don't <laughs> yes, you tell him the story? Tell him the story. Okay. Before Jimmy tells the story, I just want to point out that he refers to this as a looper. But it's technically not a looper as we think of it today. It's really an on and off switch for pre-recorded parts. And the entire act had to be worked out to fit the pre-recorded parts, as Jimmy will explain right here. He went to play, Les went to, was invited to play at the White House for Eisenhower okay. and Nixon. And they, it's the first time they ever used the pulverizer, which was nothing more than a looper. You're absolutely right. Pre-recorded, people thought it was magic. 
First time they're going to use it. Mary was deathly afraid of using it because they didn't test it. Everything was pre-recorded. You had a set list and you had to go down. Halfway through the set list, they took a break and Nixon comes up to Les and said, Mr. Paul, Mamie wants a uh, request. Les turned white as a ghost. Now Mamie's Eisenhower's wife and Les panicked because you couldn't do a request because everything's pre-recorded. And he's like, well, what does she want to hear? He says, next song she wants Boya Candios. I said, you got it. It was the next song on the list. Oh, my God. Now, in episode 30, I mentioned holding a letter that was written in 1957 by then-Vice President Richard Nixon. It arrived at Les and Mary's home a short time after the performance at the White House that we just heard about. I'd like to read that to you now. The top of the letter reads, Office of the Vice President, Washington, November 26, 1957. Quote, Dear Les and Mary, I trust you will forgive me for addressing you by your first names. However, I am sure that all of us who were privileged to hear your superb performance the other evening feel that we know you personally. I don't know when a musical performance has made a more favorable impression on an audience. The president spoke to me the following day, and I'm jumping in, that would be President Dwight Eisenhower, obviously, and told me how much he enjoyed the evening, and particularly the part the two of you played in it. He said, and this is in quotes, I haven't yet figured out how they did it. Mrs. Nixon and I realized that your coming to our party was a cause of considerable inconvenience, and we want you to know how very much we appreciated your helping to make the evening such a memorable one for all of us. With every good wish, sincerely, Richard Nixon. I don't know about you, but I find this incredible. The person who wrote that letter sounds thoughtful, decent, gracious, fun. This is not the Richard Nixon I think of. And I don't think it was an act. That sounds very sincere. Maybe he had different sides or more likely, perhaps it's true, power corrupts. It's really hard to reconcile those words with the images of the Richard Nixon of the 70s who said things like, I am not a crook. In all my years of public life, I have never profited from public service. All of which were proven to be lies. Regardless, I digress. Let's get back to less. So now I want to tell you something that may surprise you. I know it surprised me. I would like to ask you, the listener, a question. Do you recall the first episode of Moods and Modes? In particular, the part where I'm in the shop of Matt Umanov discussing my 1968 SG, which he restored. Now, Matt, for anyone who doesn't know, is considered one of the most respected guitar repair people in New York and pretty much anywhere. If there is a foremost expert on guitar, it is him. And uh, listen to what he tells me about the Gibson SG as it relates to Les Paul. You know the story about Les Paul with, with the SGs? Early 60s, when they came out with the SG shape and they wanted to put make Les Paul models with that eye. He, no, you're not putting my name on that. This fucking the SG design, it sucks. <laughs> They're untunable, etc. And he's right. And here's the thing. Now, Matt goes into a detailed description of the design of the SG. I won't play the whole thing, but here's the very end of it. It vibrates weird. And so when you really get into it, you see, gee, it's in tune here, but out of tune there, worse than on my other guitars. Right. right. That's why. As the owner of three SGs, four if you count the double knack, I can attest to the fact that they are a little bit more challenging to keep in tune. But nobody would say they suck. Did Les really say that? I'm actually not interested. I'm here to only play Barry Gaudreau's SG. The guitar that Les Paul hated. <laughs> no, actually. <laughs> All right, so that very short clip is Boston's Barry Gaudreau answering Extreme's Pat Badger in the latest version of The Neurotic Guitarist, with Benny about to set the record straight. Now, before we hear the story about what really went down between Gibson, Les Paul, and the SG, I just want to say that it is understandable that Barry Goudreau made that comment in the video, and it's understandable that Matt Umanoff told me that story. After all, it is conventional wisdom. 
It's not hard to find it confirmed elsewhere. The Gibson SG comes out in the early 60s. It's known as the Les Paul and then the Les Paul SG and eventually just the SG. The narrative becomes Les doesn't like the guitar, has no use for it, and as Matt so succinctly put it, tells Gibson, this thing sucks, take my name off it. As it turns out, this is a false narrative. The truth is much more complicated. I'm going to play it to you how I first heard it in the basement bar of Mayor Jim's house, surrounded by Joe, Benny, and Bumblefoot. Check. I it's, think, what did you show me, a page earlier where he explains why the SG, the Les Paul Custom yeah. 61 through 63, I think, I think wasn't the SG? Yeah. yeah, it's this one here. He has the actual notes of what, of what happened with the SG, the Les <clears throat> Paul Custom, before it became the SG. And this right yeah, here. That's it. Yeah. And that he actually explains. explains how it was a divorce thing. And like this is all in his own notes to himself. Yeah, what was uh, I, mean, I heard that mentioned earlier? I didn't oh yeah, so it's about it's hundred percent about his divorce with with, with Mary. Everybody Ford. said that he didn't like the SG. He got rid of the SG contract because they were going through a divorce and Mary. He didn't want the lawyers to get all the money, and that's why he quit Gibson. That's why he quit his name on the Les Paul. Mary Ford still kept her name on the SG, but they knew it wouldn't sell, so they they took her name off it. That is nuts. Yeah, because so that, that's a real story, and it's written on that paper. It's all written down right there. Yeah, well, there's a lot of stories about why he didn't like the SG. He Apparently, it was well, the tuning. He, well, because the, the, the neck is long, the well, scale of the neck. Well, is. you don't have to ask; you can just read it's it. All it's there. all right actually, there, man. He actually loved the, the SG. You can read his scroll. And his his theory about the whole thing was: if I didn't love it, I wouldn't endorse it. He said it was wow. different. He said, but I love the SG. And yeah. There's rumors out there why the name, and the name came off because of divorce. My wow. contract was terminated because of divorce. Yeah, that's very first thing it says. Yeah, it's it because, it's crazy. Why would that be? Because they were an act. Because yeah, they were Les Paul and she Mary. Was done. They were done. Bah. Now Mary wanted to retire. Yeah. And so when, and Les, he said, I got divorced not because I didn't love Mary. Right. Because I couldn't walk away. Mm -hmm. And she wanted nothing more than to raise a family, walk away, and just and. Yeah, well, he wasn't done. Yeah. And he said, I didn't divorce her because I didn't love her. Because yeah. I divorced her because I was stubborn and couldn't walk away. But they cut his contract, even though he's the last ball well, they, they of the guitar. Gibson, he, he, was, he was very depressed um, going through this whole thing, and um, he, he's the one who requested to walk away from Gibson. Yeah, it says in there oh, it's yeah. mutual. It was a mutual yeah, thing. He, you hmm. know, he just so they just appeased him. You know what? So he went into hiatus, you know, just mm. so. This is, this is writing the book right here. That's what I'm trying to So explain. when he reemerged... That's what he was re-emerging from. Was yeah. this whole, he, he got what back. Did you and discover Luke Hollow is the one who got him back on the road. That last sentence says, Lou Hollow is the one who got him back out on the road. Uh, we talked about this extensively in the previous episode, this period of the early 60s, where Les was just dealing with challenge after challenge. Dropped from his record label, falling out with Gibson guitars, major health problems, and of course, divorce with Mary. And at this time, divorce was a much bigger deal. It was more frowned upon, it was less common, it was more complicated. You didn't have services like 1-800-DIVORCE or full-time divorce attorneys. They had a lot of assets between them. And I suppose he did not want this guitar and its earnings to go straight to her lawyers. That is why Les Paul became disassociated with the Gibson SG. Now, I have read interviews with Les where he confirmed having some issues with the guitar, but he never said he hated it. I think he just kind of nodded along because the truth was so much more complicated. But the story became he hated the SG model and wanted his name removed. And there's no better source than his closest pal, Jimmy, and his own handwritten notes. I take it back. There is one better source, and that is Les himself. Now, as I mentioned, there are some interviews where he just kind of nods along when asked, you really didn't like the SG, did you? However, I have found one interview. This is quite late in life. He slowed down quite a bit. Sounds nothing like the guy in those television clips from the 1950s, but he's still got his spunk and his spirit. Elsewhere in the video, he's quite funny, although this is kind of a serious topic. And it's a great interview overall. It's put out by the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum, which is in Nashville. And the interviewer is Joe Chambers, not the jazz drummer Joe Chambers, known for his work with Joe Henderson and Freddie Hubbard, but Joe Chambers, a successful Nashville producer and songwriter who is very earnest. And here, Les chooses to open up and explain exactly what went down with the Gibson SG in his own words. 
So here with the truth in conversation with Joe Chambers, I bring you less. So um, in 1960, when the Les Paul changed over, or maybe it was 61 and 62 when they were making the, they put Les Paul on the SG style guitars. Yeah. Um, why did that cease? That ceased because of a divorce between Mary and I. And during the divorce, I didn't want to get involved in my company, which was Gibson, to be entered into the divorce proceedings. That should be left, that's mine, that's over there and this end of the, the deal. And so we made our settlements and it took years and so Capital had to wait and Gibson had to wait. So I had to leave, it was Capital where you resign and when we're divorced they're not going to resign there and <clears throat> so I went with Columbia and uh, uh, Columbia Records and stayed away from Gibson and Gibson understood they came to me and asked well, well give me give us one get the one of your guitars to put out and I said oh, I'll give you I'll give you the SG and you can go put that out but that's all. Just the just just the SG. Okay, that last statement might be a little confusing, so I just want to clear that up. The guitar that we think of as the Les Paul with the single horn played by Dwayne Allman and Jimmy Page and so many others. That was discontinued in the early 60s as part of Les's separation with Gibson. The reason for the separation with Gibson was because he did not want his contract embroiled in his divorce proceedings. Thus, the guitar that we think of as the main design of the Les Paul is not manufactured again until he reunites with Gibson in 1968. Therefore, if somebody tries to sell you a Gibson Les Paul from 1964 or 1965 or 6 or whatever, don't buy it. It's not real. But if somebody has a 1962 Les Paul, it is real, except it's what you think of as the SG. And the reason is Gibson came to him and said, could we at least do a short-term contract with this new design with your name on it? He said, sure. And are you with me so far? Because it gets even more confusing. The SG ends up having more than one type. There is the thicker version that Les Paul totally approves of and allows his name to be on for a couple years. But then there is another thinner version that he's not as crazy about, but it's going to do just fine and find some really high-profile fans in the 1970s. Here's Les again. So that lasted two years, 61, 62. Yeah. That they actually so it it wasn't that you didn't like the body style of the of the SG because um, I'd always heard that was what it was I heard that you just didn't like the didn't think that the SG body met the the qualifications or specifications. You are absolutely right. Uh, when I when I they sent me an SG I says hey if you strengthen up that neck if you get that so that you don't bend on it and change keys uh, you have to support it more there okay and then i will endorse the, the the sg and so when they do endorse when they do reinforce enough which they've done which they've done they put the name les paul back on some of the sgs if it's got two pickups then it don't bear my name or three pucks of pickups it does bear my name Okay, and that's where that topic of discussion ends in the interview. And I just want to elaborate that uh, this confirms exactly what Matt Umanoff said as far as Les Paul's issues with the SG. What's different is that they actually fixed it in the three pickup SGs that say Les Paul. And it's not as though he hates the two-pickup SG. He just doesn't like it as much. That's the guitar we would later associate with folks like Tony Iommi, Angus Young, Frank Zappa, Kim Thale of Soundgarden, and others. As we start to wrap up this episode, let's listen to the follow-up question in this interview. Here, Les touches upon his outlook on life, philosophy, and some of the qualities of his that we've been discussing throughout these two episodes. Do you know how many Les Pauls are sold or have been sold? You know, I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know how much money I got in the bank. I have no idea as how many guitars I sold. 
I don't have any idea how many Grammys I have or Oscars or anything else. I just don't pay any attention to any of it. And it's good to be just as normal a person because if you start reading and you start knowing and you start living like you can live if you want to go crazy, okay? So if I'm very successful, uh, I can do whatever I please. I can go out and, well, I don't like another guy, I can buy his whole business. <laughs> I'm only joking, but uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's something that I, I don't particularly get involved in. So like McDonald's, you don't know how many billions you've sold in. <laughs> I have no idea. And, uh, <laughs> if whoever knows, just don't tell me. Oh my goodness. You can learn so much just from that one clip right there. Now let's hear once more from Mayor Jim, who's got some final words on Les that really helps sum up everything we've learned and about when he died, in these past two episodes. Um, Take it away, Michael, Jim. who's in charge of the estate asked me if I would uh, write and read his eulogy. You should definitely read it, because that's really well written, thanks to your daughter and wife, right? Yeah. I well, what happened with this was, I came home from work the day after he died, and my wife said, uh, how, how was your day? I said, that's ah, kind of shitty. I said, but uh, Michael came and he asked me if I would write and read his eulogy. I, my wife's like, I hope to God you said no. I said, ah, yeah. It's not till next week, the funeral. So she goes, you have no idea, no idea what, what you did. So when, <laughs> when the funeral came, before the funeral, we went to the shore on vacation. And my wife's like, have you written a eulogy yet? I'm like, no, I'm going to do it when we're on vacation. Yeah, I've got four days to do it. She goes, okay. So we go to the shore that Saturday, and I got the computer on type. They go on the beach, come back five hours later. I said, how'd you do, Einstein? I said, well, I'm on day two of I met him. I'm, I'm on page eight. She goes, it's gotta be four minutes long. I'm like, that's when I realized we got a problem. So she's an English teacher with her help and my daughter. We put this together, this was his eulogy. It says, hi, my name is Jim Wysocki. I'm a police officer in Les Paul's hometown, Mala, New Jersey. I've known Les Paul for 28 years since I joined the police department in 1981. It all started with a simple phone call to the police department one night. You see, Les Paul called the police desk to find someone to plow his driveway after a small snowstorm. I told Les I would take care of it, and from that point on, we became the dearest friends. There were many phone calls at my house after the first one from Les. There would be nights that Les would call me, asking me to come over with Joe, sometimes to fix something or other times just to talk. I would always tell my wife, Dawn, that I was going over Les's house, but after the first few visits, my wife knew not to expect me home for hours. My wife understood Les and how much it meant to him telling stories. It was always the same routine. We would knock on the door of his house, Arlene would open the door and let me in. Arlene is a gal who kept Les going, his true inspiration. I'd walk through the living room, and Les would always be seated in the kitchen counter, at the kitchen counter, dressed in old jeans, t-shirt, and a Yankees hat. He was always playing guitar, tinkering with something. Les had a concept, keep it simple. If it's not broken, don't fix it, but you can tinker with it. Whenever I left Les's house, he would sometimes give me a guitar pick that he made. He would say, you never know when you'll need it, Jim, and it's always good luck. Whenever Les went out, he always took a guitar pick with him. I listened to hundreds of stories in his kitchen, ranging from how he created the 8-track recorder or how he built the guitar from the railroad track. Les was such a sweet and humble man. He would tell stories of good times he had with great people, including Bing Crosby and Chet Atkins, Judy Garland and B.B. King, and of course, Mary Ford. There was Tommy Emanuel, Bucky Pizzarelli, and he said he really loved playing with the two of them. The names went on. Paul McCartney, Jimmy Page were regulars that he talked about. One night, Les called me over to come listen to something. When I got to the house, I heard this god-awful noise coming from inside. When I was let in, there was Les at this counter playing his guitar, just like usual. Les said that a few nights ago, he heard Jimmy Page's band on the radio. Jimmy was making a sound he never heard a Les Paul guitar make, so he was trying to imitate the sound. You should have seen him. Les was pulling a metal file across the strings to make a sound. He said it wasn't even close. <laughs> John Bon Jovi, Richie Sambora, Steve Miller were also regulars he spoke about. Les recently told me he thought Richie Sambora was a great songwriter. 
Les really loved those guys. There were just so many people Les admired. Carlos Santana, Eddie Van Halen, Slash. I would be here for hours reading off names of people that Les spoke about. I apologize for not mentioning everyone. It was Monday nights at the Iridium Club in New York City. Kept Les going. He loved it, but more so he loved working with his trio. John Coliani, Nicky Parrott, and Lou Paolo. Les thought the world of them. Les always made fun of Lou's age. Les would sometimes tell a story on stage of how they lived together on the Ramapo Valley Road in Oakland, New Jersey. I knew it was only a story, but when people left the, in the audience, when they left, they left scratching their heads because they didn't know if it was true. Lou and Les were such dear friends. Tommy Doyle, Les's son, and Chris Lentz rounded out the Iridium team. Chris was more than special to Les. Chris was always by his side, and tr he truly loved you. Les was a perfectionist, just ask anyone in the trio. Two other people that are regulars at the club were Sonia and John Paris. Les thought the world of the two of them. One of the most important people in Les's life was his manager, Michael Bronstein. Michael was the one who kept all the loose ends together in Les's life. Michael was a dear friend. About a year ago, I was at his house and Les asked me one night what my favorite guitar was. I told him, the Les Paul, of course. After I told a story or two, I left his house and went home. A few days later, I took Les to the doctors for a flu shot. When I got back home, Les said, wait a minute. He came out a few minutes later and handed me an old custom guitar. I refused it, but he said, put it under your bed for a rainy day. We argued that our friendship was not about that. We argued right in his driveway, but I learned later, never argue with a genius, you'll never win. <laughs> Everything changed one early evening in June of this year, a few days before his 94th birthday. I received the call from Les's house. It was Arlene telling me that Les was very sick and needed to go to the hospital. It worried me because Les just got home from a short stay in the hospital. When I got to the house, the door was wide open and I went inside. The look on Arlene and Russ's face said everything. I went into the bedroom where Les was lying in bed. I asked him what, his, what was wrong. Les said, Jim, I'm very sick. I told him that I would help him get dressed and we'd go to the hospital. He asked me what my favorite guitar was. I didn't want to go down that road again, so I said, it's a Fender, Les. Well, Les looked at me with, as sick as he was and he said, remember one thing, Jimmy. I always do the comedy. <laughs> he asked me if I remembered the story he told me about Paul McCartney coming to the club tonight, and now at Paul McCartney's ex-wife. He said, remember when I brought them on stage and I knocked on her wooden leg for good luck? We both laughed. He then sat up and motioned for me to sit on a bed next to him. He said, can we talk? I said, of course. Les looked at me and said, Jim, I'm tired. I, took, uh, I told him it was okay that, and we would go to the hospital where doctors could take care of him and he could get the rest he needed. Without moving a muscle, he looked at me and said, no, Jim, I'm really tired. It was at that moment I realized that this frail man who I thought to be Superman was telling me he didn't have the energy that he once had. He said, before I go anywhere, Jim, I want to have a big party right here in my house with all my dear friends. This way I could give them anything they want. Well, anything they want. With that said, I helped him to his feet, he got dressed, and he helped him to my car and off to the hospital. It's ironic that the wish that Les had came true. I'm standing in a place now Les calls home. It's filled with all his dear friends, and technically it's a celebration or a party. And as for giving friends anything they want, I think it's fair to say that Les Paul has given us, as well as the world, anything we, and everything we could ever need. Les gave everyone tools to succeed. He, was, he set the standards for all of us to follow. Les was the teacher, and we were the students. One last thing before I go. Remember when I told you Les never left the house without a guitar pick? Well, I brought an extra one just in case you forgot, and I laid it on a casket. That's beautiful. Oh, man, I'm going to lose it. Beautiful. <laughs> and that wraps up our pair of episodes on Les Paul. For now, there is... So much to tell. You never know, Les may make another appearance at some point. Regardless, big thanks to everybody who helped make these episodes happen. Extra special thanks to Jim and Joe in Mawa. Visit their pages online, Les Paul in Mawa, by dude Ron Bumblefoot Fall. And of course, Benny Goodman, who brought us all together and was the instigator. Visit his page, The Neurotic Guitarist, on YouTube. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Production for Osiris by Kirsten Cluthy and Matt Dwyer. Final edits and mixes by Matt Dwyer. Opening and closing themes and original music throughout, unless otherwise indicated, is by yours truly. And in a few places, joined by Matt Zabrowski on the drums and Nathan Pack on the bass. Right there. Artwork is by Mark Dow. Special thanks to our Patreon community. 
you can always support the podcast directly by going to patreon.com slash And indirect support is greatly appreciated as well, whether that's writing a review, rating us, telling friends, or whatever. We're happy just that you're listening. And thanks once again for understanding about my touring schedule and the occasional disruptions. I'm working on that, and we do have some really cool stuff coming up that I think you're going to be excited about. Anyway, I'm off to tour. This is Alex Skolnick signing off, thanking you once again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Take care and be safe. I went running to my mother and I said, boy, I've got the answer. And I says, you've never heard sound like this in your life, and I can turn it up real loud. And it's, uh, it's terrific. And my mom says, the day you see a cowboy on a horse playing a railroad track. <laughs> and so she says, I think you better think this thing over. And I did. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Osiris. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.